You're listening to the American Watchmen Roundtable Podcast. The show will begin after the following messages from our sponsor. Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the American Watchmen Roundtable Podcast. I'm your host, uh, Sam Whitfield, one of your hosts of the podcast and uh joining me tonight are my uh, american watchman colleagues josh joshua johnson and gabe uh, Icaboni. uh for those of you who are brand new to the channel we've received uh over 150 to 200 new subscribers within the past few weeks uh on this channel for the whitfield report and i really appreciate that i i really do uh, but the American Watchmen Roundtable is a podcast that I put together with uh, two of my other friends uh, here, Josh and Gabe. And uh, we also run a, a website called AmericanWatchmen.org, which is more of like a blog site, although none of us really, except for uh, Gabe, really write on it anymore. So we formed this group pod- podcast just to, uh, you know, form just to discuss the uh, current issues of the week and kind of do a discussion from each of our points of view. So uh, each week we'll each have a topic. We'll each have three topics and we'll spend 20 minutes uh, moderating on each of them uh, and discussing them. So for all of you who are uh, tuned in, we really appreciate it and we hope you enjoy the show. So uh, Josh and Gabe, whichever one of you wants to introduce yourself, you know, let's, Let's get this thing started as usual. For our uh, our new uh, listeners, I want I, I'm Joshua Johnson. I'm a fellow co-founder of American Watchmen with uh, Sam and Gabe, and I just want to thank uh, everybody who uh, subscribed. And I hope you guys enjoy listening to us every week. And I'm Gabe Icaboni, also a co-founder of American Watchmen, and ditto what Josh said. All right. Uh, gentlemen so uh what so i i suppose gabe you wanted to start uh off with the wall that was kind of your chosen topic and since you were uh scheduled to kind of moderate that last week but since we canceled you didn't really uh get a chance so i figured i would allow you to uh start us off with that topic oh sure um well so um I guess I'll just lead in with a quick intro, any changes that have been going on, and then just questions, discussion. Um, So uh, last Friday, it was, I believe, um, as expected, Trump declared a national emergency to build um, the vaunted wall on the border. And as expected, there a number of states, um, California and 15 others, sued the administration on the wall over the constitutional separation of powers and the, um, for in California's case, since it's leading the lawsuit, California sued over the fact that some of the money that would be diverted to the wall, um, would harm the state regards to, um, anti-drug trafficking, uh, activities and then i think some money that would go to a couple local police departments was also diverted to the wall um 
So I just wanted to lead in with the general question of what do you guys um, consider uh, the impact of this or what do you consider the impact of this will be in terms of whether it actually gets built or not? Because one of the things that has been commented on is that this only affects about out of the $8 billion that Trump said this would allow him to use – he actually already has $4 billion that he can allocate without the emergency. So where do you guys kind of see this going in terms of the legalities of it um, and its impact on 2020? I'm not going to really talk about the legality of it because I don't think I would be qualified or, or the person who really follows judiciary events enough to actually weigh in on that. But I, I can discuss the impact. And uh, I'm going to just kind of briefly sum it up for our new listeners, because if you've been listening to our show on a regular basis every week, then you kind of already know where I might be going with this, because I had repeatedly said the last few times we discussed this that I thought Trump should declare the national emergency. But I also think I said at least one time in on one of our past discussions that the actual effect of the of the emergency isn't going to be a wall it's going to be uh taken to court as it has been and it's going to be shot down and that will allow the administration to easily pivot onto an issue that uh is less uh, divisive within the party uh for the 2020 presidential election whether or not that's a good thing or whether or not this whole thing is a good thing I'm kind of meh, because like I said, I wanted them to declare this national emergency. But on the other side, on the other hand, it's not going to get us a wall. Even if he's reelected in 2020, I don't think we're going to get a wall because if, as you might have noticed in the in the State of the Union, he's increasingly started to move away from the idea of what he originally promised and more towards just another fence. And uh, and it's become less of a priority not so much perhaps to him, but to his advisors. And that's where the the real uh, intellectual drive in this administration seems to be. So I don't think we're going to get a wall period now, which I'm obviously disappointed in. But uh, in terms of, as I said, pivoting towards a less divisive issue for, for the party, then I guess, yeah, if you want to see if if you're hoping for a, a, a second Trump term, then, uh, yeah, that's a good thing for the president because the party is going to have less issues, certainly less issues than the Democrats are already having. Um, but I mean, that's I, I'm meh on it. I, I don't really feel I, I I'm disappointed because it didn't have to turn out like this. And it's just and, and you can attribute it to Trump not being a politician and not being experienced and not really knowing the ins and outs of how this whole system works, or you can attribute it to the fact that uh, within the the palace intrigue that kind of occurred over the first few years of this administration, that the people who were most adamant about getting the wall were the ones who wound up losing the power struggle. Um, but it, it didn't have to end this way. And I guess I'm going to maybe leave leave it open to Sam to see what he adds. And then maybe Gabe can have a follow up and I can elaborate more if I need to. But that's that's where I am on it. Yeah, well, first off, I just have to kind of echo what uh, Josh is saying and saying that I'm not, you know, a legal expert. So as far as like what the legal ramifications of this are, uh, you know, I can't speak 
to uh, that at all. And I, and I, I can't really speak to the uh, infrastructural, uh, you know, the, I can't speak to the technical uh, quality of, of the wall either. And, and really, I, I'm just, I'm just a, uh, I'm just a, you know, guy getting my general opinion here, but um, you know, I, I guess what it all comes down to for me is um, I, and I've stated this before on the, on the podcast. I, I think when Trump initially uh, went out for the wall in 2016, he uh, was playing from a place of, he made the, he, right. He's a businessman. So tr- Trump, his style of doing business is he's going to make the most extreme, uh, you know, proposition possible, which is that we need a a big, uh, you know, border wall to, uh, you know, secure the border and improve border security. Um, you know, which a lot of people saw as r- like a really extreme measure in, in 2016. Well, now that he's uh, president, we're you know starting to see him you know talking more about adding like better security and whatnot. He he, he definitely wants to secure the border, and I I do believe that. And as long as as long as he finds a way to secure the uh, the border um, and make it so that it's not porous like it is right now, um, I'll be pretty happy. I'm not I'm not necessarily hung up on the uh, logistics of actually having like a physical wall i'm not against it either if it can happen but i think trump's overall position as i've always stated for the past two years has really been more about border security over uh overall um you know obviously i i do think it's interesting that trump declared uh you know a national emergency you know say citing that the border crisis is an emergency. And I think in some ways he is right. Um, I also do understand, I can see the logic. Some conservatives are worried that, you know, by doing this Trump, um, by using that logic to justify the building of the wall as a national emergency, they're saying that liberals will use this to justify, you know, national healthcare as like a national emergency. And I can... Um- I'll I'll kind of alleviate the the concerns there because there yeah. have been there are there are not there have been there are right now thirty over thirty executive emergencies in effect and they don't really do a whole lot so that's why I've not been concerned about the whole precedent argument because like I said a few minutes ago it's not going to get you get us the wall and it's not going to get a future Democrat president universal health care or the Green New Deal or whatever they try to do. Executive fiat's not going to, to do that with the way our system is set up. No, and there there are certain there are certain technicalities that you could find with this versus a national emergency like climate change. Because for example, I, I have a feeling if this goes to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would do something where they'd say this is this is a fairly consolidated action towards one area of the country, whereas the arguments that this could lead to a to a president deciding, well, I want universal health care, I want climate change, 
that that's not a that doesn't impact a particular region of the country. It impacts the entire country. So the the legal precedent that this will set, I, I mean, I think that's more you know a philosophical argument than anything else, right? Because you know, like I said, universal health care is going to be different than building a wall. I mean, a wall is a particular part or region of the country. I I will say that the, even though I'm disappointed in how this played out, it has caused me, excuse me, I'm still having my throat issues I've been suffering from. Um, But uh, I I have sort of um, changed in how I see some of this stuff. Uh, even though I'm disappointed in how Trump chose to to go about everything and the outcome, I I I do. It, it's made me reconsider how important an issue it was. Um, because if it was a national emergency, why wasn't it declared two? I mean, he he phrased it as an emergency when he ran for president. A whole year went by and it was talked about as an emergency, but nothing was done. Another year went by and it was talked about as an emergency, and nothing went done was done. Yeah. And, and so it does. It does, to me, raise some questions about how much this should be prioritized. And I, and don't get me wrong, I, I do think that the the border is still an issue. Oh, and yeah. I'm not really okay with the idea of just putting more fences down, because for what I'm seeing is basically him going to doing what George Bush did on it. And that, that didn't solve the problem either. But what, what I have sort of reconsidered is thinking about the roots of the problem. And why right. we have mass waves of immigrants, and I think that's a better, a better uh, area to look at for solutions to the problem than necessarily seeing what more we can do. And don't get me wrong, I do think we can do more on securing our border. It's just I don't prioritize it as highly as I as I have. I guess I mean it, to me, it it doesn't seem like an emergency after watching how the, how they handled it. I guess if that makes sense to anybody. Right. No. Yeah, Josh, I'm kind of in the same boat. And, you know, just to kind of clarify my point, what I was saying earlier, like I said, I mean, I'm not I'm not against the wall. And I'm I mean, if if we could if we could if we could get the wall, you know, that that would be good, because I I think Trump's, you know, proposition for for the walls from what I have seen um, are, you know, actually pretty legitimate in theory um i'm not hung up on them as 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 most people know who have followed this podcast um long term my reason for voting for trump uh wasn't necessarily even because i was main trump guy in the beginning although i did you know before the primaries were over my uh reason was you know i would was basically to stop Hillary and also, you know, more to just fight back against the uh, the SJW culture. And Trump has, you know, definitely done that symbolically and whatnot. And I think overall, as president, he's done a he's done a way better job than uh, Barack Obama did. That's for sure. And, well, uh, I think the wall. I mean, ultimately, the debate over the wall is just is just symbolism. But uh, yeah. I, I like I, how you phrase that, though, though, Gabe. I, I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, it's it's a powerful it's a powerful symbol for his base, which is why I think Trump really pushed for it. But I think there's also an unspoken realization by Trump in that he 
in that it, it's kind of interesting how he's gone about this because if it, it seems like he's doubling down, say, on a losing strategy if you just take a look at the polls. But I think that underneath those those top-line numbers is there's a realization that no matter how hard Trump pushes on this, it's actually not hurting him with with Hispanics which he'll he'll need to win in 2020. So I don't uh, I, the debate over the wall is ultimately symbolism, but I don't think it's doing as much damage to him as as a lot of the media likes to portray. I mean, I I don't think it's moving the needle one way or the other. I like how you phrase it as symbolism because I think and also what Sam said because I wasn't I, I, my primary reason for liking Trump throughout was his radically different approach to foreign policy. And we'll get into that later. But, uh, but uh, he, he, Sam knows what's going. But, uh, but, but that was my primary reason. Although I think what I, li- and I was concerned about immigration and I continue to be concerned about it. But I think what to Gabe's point about it being symbolism, I think, and Sam's point about, confronting the SJW culture, the politically correct culture, I think a lot of reason that resonated so much with people was partly because of the actual impacts of mass migration, which have not been good for working class Americans at all, particularly those that have to compete with the constant uh, flow of cheap labor across the board. And partly because it was, as Gabe notes, the idea of a Berlin Wall-esque kind of thing just is anathema to the, to the politically correct culture. And people liked liked to see that because it, it represented sort of a philosophical shift away from how we view what America's role in the world is and how we handle challenges like this. And I think that's what a lot of people liked. Although I also think, as I mentioned, that there were the practical ways the mass migration hurt a lot of working class people and you saw that particularly in the rust belt but um i like how you phrased that game well thank you yeah so um i mean so in terms of the wine this is your topic gabe so did you have any uh, other points you wanted to bring up or any other questions or uh shall we move on to uh Professor uh, Johnson here. I did not have any other questions or comments, con- uh, concerns, other than it'll just be interesting how this will play out, um, especially how big an issue uh, it becomes in 2020. But I, I sort of am like you guys. I think it will be um, kind of just a, a little side issue, and I think it will fade in relevance compared to the other bigger issues that come up. Um, so with that, uh, I'll I, will, it off. I, oh, I know we have a bit more time for the, the first subject. So maybe I might throw something in that can generate some conversation. Um, as I, as I mentioned, I was not satisfied with the way it, it played out and I'm not satisfied with the fact that essentially what I think this national emergency does is it basically means the wall is never going to happen and it allows Trump to put it in his rearview mirror for good for the rest of his presidency, even if he's reelected, because it was the premier promise. And if you don't fulfill that in your first term, you've essentially broken it. But they found a way, as I said, to use this emergency in the, the court challenge it presents to kind of uh, direct all of the sheep in a different direction, if you will. 
Uh, See that that's not to to be I and that's not to beat up on everybody because I know there are a lot of Trump supporters that are like me that have tried to hold the president accountable to his promises, but there are also a lot of people who just kind of do the whole 40 chess thing like Sean Hannity and uh Mike Cernovich. constantly will justify anything he does. And I I'm afraid that, that that's what this I don't like the idea. Here's what I'm essentially saying. I don't like the idea that somebody can make a promise like that, even if it, even if a lot of its appeal was the symbolism, that somebody can make a promise like that and then do absolutely nothing different from what we've been doing on it and then get away with doing nothing different from going about business as usual, from changing nothing after campaigning for radical change. And then just not, there's no consequences to that. I, I, I'll, I, that's my essential problem here. Well, I, I'll agree, uh, I, I can, I'll agree with that to an extent, but I, I think, I mean, to, to punish somebody for that, you, you have to counterbalance that with the fact that the system is set up to block him from doing, the system is set up to block anybody from making radical change. I mean, it, whether it's the courts, whether it's the bureaucracy, whether it's political power, say, shifting in an election, our system really is set up to block any sort of radical change, especially when it's coming from, from the executive level or when it's coming from such a non-conventional figure um, as Trump. So, I mean, I, I think you can blame him to an extent and hold him responsible for an ex- to an extent, but to you have to you have to weigh that against what was working against him in the first place. I mean, Josh, you've made the point that that Trump sort of had to work with the Republican Party. He didn't just necessarily have it remade for him by the time he won office. So you have to take into account things like Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, and Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, were opposed to this idea, and the Democrats were opposed to this idea, and that the courts were opposed to it. And we know damn well the bureaucracy was opposed to it. So, you know, he didn't exactly have an immediate path to make this happen. So that I think that has to be weighed um when assessing whether he gets away with doing it or not, or whether he did enough to make it happen or not. I'll agree. There was no conventional path to it, but I I mean, the way I've often viewed it, excuse me, throat issues again, the way I've, uh, the way I've viewed it is in terms of political capital starting in 2017, when he was sworn in, Trump had all of the political capital within GOP circles. Anyway, all the political capital, was in his corner on this in order to remake the party. And as you mentioned, there there were people, there were established party leadership figures and establishment types that were already there who were dead set against him and everything he wanted to do. They were against changing the Republican Party. They were the old guard. Uh and and they they were they were going to stubbornly hold their line no matter what. But Trump was the one that demonstrably beat them within a GOP primary with the party's actual members and the party's most uh, diehard supporters, the ones that actually show up in primary elections, he won hands down over and over again against all the other conventional GOP candidates. So as I view it, he had the political capital and what could have been done if I were in his position, he could have gone in and talked to the GOP caucus privately in 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 a meeting with them and made it pretty clear that here's my agenda that I got elected to do. Your guys is lost in the primary. Mine was the one that won the White House, not your guys in 2012. Here's how we're going to do it. And you can either get behind me with this, or I can go out there in front of the cameras and tell my voters that are all in my corner 
that their party doesn't care about them, doesn't want to have the changes necessary, and we can go ahead and sit here and do nothing for two years, and I'll declare war on you all in the midterms. And you might say, well, uh, Mitch McConnell might say, well, Trump, you're going to hand over the House to the Democrats or the Senate to the Democrats anyway. Well, one, doing it their way, that happened anyway. And two, I, I think at some level, if if you want to have change, you have to make the threat of, well, yeah, I'm going to be captain of the ship. And I'm not, if I'm not going to be captain of the ship, I'll make sure the whole thing sinks with me. And I'm not talking about the country. I'm talking about the party in terms of, of what of, for a lot of us was kind of a, a shifting out of the, the old guard of the GOP in the 2016 primary. And then that didn't happen. It, it sort of boggles the mind that somebody could have had all these all the political capital in their corner. And then manages to to for either as a result of incompetence or as the result of being too trusting, he manages to 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 let the old guard take over and basically run the show until such time as he's no longer able to achieve what he ran on. Well, I think you I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of that. It I don't think that's Trump's style, and maybe it's. Maybe it is part of that he was naive when he came in thinking that he would just get his way. Um, I mean, because that's the difference between politics and business. Um, for, for better or worse, you can't run the government like you run a business because the government doesn't have a profit, doesn't have a, a profit incentive. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, Trump could have done things a, a different way. Um, but I think that he was, I mean, I'll give him a little more of the benefit of the doubt than you will, just because Republican politics for so long have been consumed with things like healthcare reform or repealing Obamacare and, and tax reform. Those were issues that were more salient to the party than Trump. And I don't even think Trump could have overcome that, um, no matter how hard he tried. Uh, I do honestly believe that um because it's more it, it it's more uniting for the party than than immigration i mean josh you've talked about realignment a lot and, and i agree with it but the republican party has not completely realigned itself and so some of the issues that trump ran on and and still holds pretty dearly are issues that do divide the party more than things like lower taxes or making health care portable. Um, immigration is a more divisive issue in general. And so, I mean, it takes a pretty per persuasive figure to unite a party along those lines. And I would argue it takes somebody more persuasive than Trump. It's it's not just immigration, though. I mean, if you if you look and I know we're going to get into this, so I'm not going to say too much about it. And maybe it's a good way to transition. Maybe that was subconsciously part of my thinking when I brought this up. But uh, it's not just immigration. It was the way he broke from the GOP establishment completely on immigration. On uh, Sorry, <laughs> it is just immigration. Uh, no, no, it's uh, the way he broke uh, with the party completely also on foreign policy. The way that camp candidate Trump was actually running around saying, we're going to have universal health care. I'm going to find a way to get it for, get it for everybody. And then that managed to completely... Uh, get sort of pushed down by Riense Priebus after he actually won the nomination. Uh, the way that came out and said that not only are we going to not cut Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid, we're going to find ways to expand these programs. He he challenged the GOP on almost every level. On almost every level, he bucked Republican orthodoxy. It's why he had to come out and say, this is not the conservative party, this is the Republican party. 
And then after the uh, Republican convention and after Ansei Priebus began to take a larger and larger role in his campaign, that sort of went away. And you can say, well, you know, those were just uh, those were just Trump not knowing a lot about politics. But if you look at some of the people that were more or less his brain during the during the campaign, the people that did a lot of his thinking on stuff like this, they were outsider figures like Steve Bannon, who wound up pushing those kind of issues all the way through the first half of the administration until finally Bannon, in his case, went too far and said he wanted to have the 68 percent income tax rate on top earners. And that was too much. And he was forced out of the White House by the the Republican elites there. So it wasn't just immigration. It was that. And and maybe that speaks to your point still that they couldn't they didn't feel they could radically abandon their donor class. And I can I kind of understand that. But at the same time, that's kind of what needed to happen, I think. Well, I think oh. it'll I, I think it'll happen sooner rather than later. I just don't think the party was there yet to do it. Well, let me let me jump in here real quick because Josh said something way early on, which I want a few minutes ago, which I wanted to address, which is that uh, you know Trump hasn't fulfilled his first term uh, campaign promises, and that's you know that's looking pretty bad um, due to the fact you know that the wall was was a first term uh, promise. But let me just say that uh, I read an article. I can't remember who or uh, where it was from, so apologies to whomever uh, is watching. But uh, basically, the gist of this uh, article uh, basically said that uh, after Trump wins re-election in 2020, he can focus more on the wall because he won't have to worry about uh, you know, the prospect of the Democrats, you know, trying to use, you know, the quote unquote oppressiveness as the wall of the wall as like a, you know, as like a counter uh, attack ad during the, uh, you know, during re-election. And uh, oddly, this article actually compared Trump in that way to to Obama in terms of uh Obama, for his first few years, really, if you think about it, really wasn't that radical with uh, his policies compared to his compared to the last four years, you know, post 2012. Um, You know, that was when we really saw Obama kick his leftist policies into gear more. And, uh, you know, that was also when we saw the SJW cold closer take hold more too but that's another subject for another uh maybe for later on but um you know i i think what i would say is don't is uh if you're if you're planning on giving up hope just because the wall's not here yet i i would i'm not giving up on trump is my bottom line with this and i would i would implore that none of the listeners uh or viewers do either i guess i would kind of disagree with you directly uh, because i i saw it in opposite terms with obama he accomplished a lot more during his first term than he did his second term and that's not just obama that's presidents generally because once you're a lame duck president your influence and your ability to work with congress just starts to decline and after that second year of your first term if you've not of your second term my bad after that second year of your second term you're pretty much done 
they've moved on from you at that point, and they're looking to the future already. Uh, in Obama's case, he was able to achieve the most important issue of his entire presidency from his perspective, which was getting Obamacare and getting that handled. Uh, in the second term, he focused more on foreign policy, which presidents tend to do, because, as I said, you begin to lose your influence with Congress. So what can a president do without having to deal with them all the time? He can turn to foreign policy usually. Um, but in the first term, that was a, a, from Obama's perspective, the Obamacare bill. Uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act, as they called it, um, was the the chief accomplishment for him. And you you kind of look at Trump's first term and what is the chief accomplishment? You could argue it's the tax bill. But if if our long term readers and listeners may remember, I made a prediction quite some time ago where I, I criticized the thing roundly. I was not a fan of it. Uh, I was with Steve Bannon on it. But uh, there were a few good things like getting rid of the individual mandate. But uh, I, I believe I made a prediction that people aren't going to notice a few extra dollars here and there on their paychecks. And uh, lo and behold, here we've come around to the first tax year where this uh, bill is in effect and people are outraged. And you see it on the news almost every night. They've chosen to run with it. And I've seen it at our firm. People are outraged because they feel like they're not getting as big of a refund. And and it's it's not proving to be the mass successful uh, re-election thing that that Paul Ryan sort of promised to Trump. So uh, that's, to Gabe's point, I think that's why you're seeing Trump try to pivot to judges and trying to pivot to, to other issues to try and win voters because he's not going in in a really strong position, it doesn't look uh, like. I think, well, I'll, I'll disagree with that to an extent, actually, because, because Bush passed tax cuts in 2003 and the same argument was made about Bush's tax cuts in 2003, which is they're not they're not visibly benefiting him. But I think with the tax cuts, especially with tax cuts in particular, it's not it's not a sing, it, it's not a single variable or it's not going to lead to a single variable that you can point to for a president's reelection. What it will do is it will goose the economy and make everybody feel better about the economy which will then make a president in a stronger position. So, I mean, I, I understand the point of there's outrage right now because everybody got less of a refund. And then the counter argument, which is, but you're paying less in taxes overall. So your refund isn't going to be that big to begin with. But the bigger story is the benefit it provides the economy, which is mostly what determines whether presidents get reelected or not. So, I mean, I, I don't see it, it. It may not help Trump. I don't think it's going to hurt him either. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't see the tax cuts being a being a hindrance on Trump's reelection, whether it was more important than, say, um, Trump's promise of building a wall. You know, that that that's debatable. But I, I think I think the tax cuts will actually prove to be a benefit to Trump. I just don't think it's going to be easy to tell that it's a benefit. I, I think the proof in the pudding is going to be when the economy is still strong when he runs for re-election. I, was, I wasn't saying if, if it was going to be a major boost or a major, uh, or a major stumbling block for him in 2020. It was kind of, as you said, it was meant to, to the majority of the American people. It didn't really stir feelings one way or the other unless you're somebody who's overtly political like we are and uh and and more to my point though which was what can we say that this administration accomplished major major lasting accomplishment in the first term and so far it doesn't seem that they've been able to do that whereas obama 
even though yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of his. Uh, but I'll admit, and I'm not a fan of Obamacare either. I've been saying we needed to get rid of it. But uh, I, I, I'll at least admit that you can say, look, he got something done during his, his, uh, his first term. And going into this, and, I, and this goes back to Sam's point, because I was essentially disagreeing with him and with the article. Uh, if, if Trump gets, gets reelected and the argument is, well, now I'll be able to do all the stuff I said I wanted to do, uh, not really, because you, you've not got anything done when you had the political capital, when you had the Congress that was willing to work with you. Now, after you get reelected, assuming you get reelected, you've got even less time. You've got at least at the most, at the most, you've got two years. And then after that, the Congress is basically done with you. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm not optimistic and sort of to Sam's closing point on whether or not he gave up on Trump. I guess I wouldn't encourage our listeners to to do either of those. I would encourage our listeners to think for themselves and to look less at personalities and more at the actual issues you're concerned about, because that's sort of been the deal with me and why I can't really say I'm too keen on the president anymore. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it'll be it'll be inter- it'll be interesting. I mean, I mean, let, 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 me, let me put it this way. I, I'm not one of these people who is like, well, you know, 40, I'm not, I'm not Bill Mitchell. Um, where I just say, oh, for, you know, 40 chess, you just don't understand what Trump is doing. Um, but I think, uh, I don't, I don't think the wall should be the, me- should be the make or break thing. For- oh, I'll agree with you on that. I'll agree with you on that because even with me, the wall, while that was a contributing factor, what what ultimately, and you guys have seen my reasoning already, but our listeners haven't. For for me, the disappointment with Trump comes transition time, uh, mainly from foreign policy, um, but but also from a, a whole series of other issues I uh, yeah. discussed, but mainly with like the tax bill, but. The wall thing, while I was disappointed with how it ended, I wouldn't say that should be the hinging thing for anybody either, because as we've sort of made clear in the first segment, it's a meh kind of the way this whole thing is played out. It's meh. So, yeah, it's not bad, but it's not good. It's just meh at this point. So, uh, so anyway, uh, Mr. Anyway, uh, Mr. Johnson, what would you like to talk about with in regards to foreign policy? Well, I was actually uh, wanting to discuss Venezuela because that has literally been all the president or Mike Pompeo or John Bolton or most recently today, uh, Marco Rubio has been able to talk about constantly. And it's, it's kind of mind boggling how little mention it's gotten in the press. It's gotten a little bit, but a lot of the, the rhetoric that come from this administration in the last few days has been eerily reminiscent of the way Bush was talking about Saddam Hussein during the buildup to the Iraq war. And uh, it, it's been overtly aggressive. It's been the rhetoric towards Venezuela. I don't know if I said Venezuela already, but that's, that's what I'm talking about for our listeners. The rhetoric yeah. has been overtly aggressive. It's been, uh, it's been very militaristic. It's been, uh, well, to, to, to quote one of them, uh, quite frankly, Mike Pompeo just said yesterday, your days are numbered. Uh, to Nicolas Maduro. Um, and, and to some extent, to, to calm some of our, our listeners down, if you are somebody who agrees more with me, um, it's not necessarily 
that we're at the end of the world uh, yet. I think there is some wishful thinking in the in the way our elites, political and media, talk about it. For example, a few weeks ago, there was a story in the Guardian saying that uh, President President Maduro's military officers are on the verge of having a coup any day now. And I was discussing it with somebody, and I basically sent them five older, even older articles from Syria where almost on a monthly basis they were saying that there were military officers prepared to ditch on Assad, and then none of them ever happened. Uh, so there is some wishful thinking in the way the rhetoric is played out from the media and from this administration. So that's that's kind of the silver lining. But otherwise, it's been eerily reminiscent of uh, the way Bush talked about Saddam. And I'll maybe open it to more specific questions from you guys now. I, I would just kind of comment and, and say um... – this whole Venezuela um, situation is very, is very interesting because it, it seems like the neocons are, of course, chomping at the bit for us to go into uh, Venezuela based on, you know, what I've seen from them on Twitter and, uh, you know, on, in the news and in, in the big talk shows and all that stuff. But um, I do want to go back to the State of the Union a few weeks ago, I even alluded to this on the Whitfield re- report um, once that perhaps when uh, Trump was saying Americans don't fight, uh, you know, unnecessary wars, I think maybe that was kind of like his, him uh, sticking his, you know, middle, g- giving the uh, neocons the proverbial middle finger uh, in regards to Venezuela. The- Again, so it is for yeah for the more casual observer a lot of this stuff is probably i've seen a lot of people who don't follow it quite as closely as us feel like the president is bipolar when it comes to this because sometimes he'll do really good things where he'll say no foreign wars and we're going to meet with kim jong-un in vietnam and we're going to have peace um but then on in other cases it is uh the complete opposite like in syria and venezuela and I think for the more casual observer, what you have to understand is there is a difference, even though I compare him to Bush, there is a, there is a crucial difference between the way Trump seems to look at these things and the way that Bush looked at these things. And Bush and most of the neoconservatives who are with Trump on Venezuela and Iran and Syria, the the neoconservatives are ideologically driven to spread American-style democracy around the globe. So that's why they want to go everywhere, be it like John McCain said, we'll invade Cuba, we'll invade North Korea, we'll invade Nigeria, we'll invade Libya. Uh, He listed all the countries where he thought we needed regime change at one point in the Senate. It was ideologically driven. With Trump, you don't really see that, and it is much more uh, financially driven. It's driven by the donor class. And so you see, for example, a country like North Korea, where coincidentally enough, there's no oil. Uh, Trump will go around and and praise Kim Jong-un as an economic genius, even though he clearly isn't. And uh, he'll he'll be wanting to have friendlier relations with them, which is a good thing. I'm I'm happy he's doing that. I, I will praise Trump for the way he's handled Korea. But it's it's different from Venezuela and Syria and Iran because there is no financial incentive for our elites in North Korea. But there is in Venezuela, which has the world's largest oil reserves, which is why the rhetoric doesn't match up. And also why Trump contradicts himself ideologically. As I noted, he praised Kim Jong-un as being an economic genius. 
when the economy is totally state controlled and there is much worse uh, uh, issues economically within North Korea than there are in Venezuela, where the economy is 70 percent private sector still. Um, and yet he will turn around and talk about Venezuela as though the reason is uh, because they're socialists, even though that really isn't it. It's because of the oil, because if it was, there wouldn't be that. So that's the crucial difference. It's ideologically driven interventionism from the from the neoconservatives. And and with Trump, it seems to be a much more merchantilist approach where, well, can I make money off this? And uh, in Venezuela, the answer to that for American elites and for, for this administration appears to be yes, because of the oil. Um, so there is a difference. That That is the crucial difference for our listeners who sometimes get confused about why Trump seems to go back and forth on this. The way the the way the neocons have gone, uh, you know, covering Venezuela, it seems to me like they're they're trying to equate Venezuela to to Cuba, and I mean maybe this is a particular thing with Marco Rubio and more specifically here to Florida, but like a lot of the neocons kind of uh, that I've I've encountered uh, in you know real life some of whom are my neighbors, granted they're older uh, boomers, they tend to uh, talk about the about Venezuela and kind of like equate it to Cuba. And that's obviously not, you know, the well, here's, case. The here's, case. The, here's the question you can ask them. Uh, several questions. One, have you seen any news articles over the last uh, 10 years or so uh, about Cuba having mass food shortages? No. Since the uh, since the embargo has been lifted and since the travel restrictions have been lifted, if you've gone to Cuba, have you noticed people standing in bread lines or have you noticed the stores being uh, completely empty? No. The problems in Cuba and Venezuela, and we discussed this a little bit last time, so I'm not going to go too much into it, but I will raise something slightly new. Uh, the problem in Cuba and Venezuela essentially is sanctions, as we've discussed before, and certain poor decisions made by Nicolas Maduro, perhaps the biggest of which being the idea that you can simply print money to solve your problems. Uh, because hyperinflation is what causes people needing wheelbarrows full of money to buy $20,000 toilet paper, like in Venezuela. You don't see that in Cuba because the Cuban government's not been printing money constantly. Um, and that's that's what Maduro's been doing since 2015. It's not a uniquely socialist problem. It's a problem that we saw in Weimar, Germany during the 1930s in the Great Depression prior to Hitler's seizure of power, where the government was just printing money like crazy and people needed entire wheelbarrows full of Deutschmarks to buy a loaf of bread. Um, so the comparison to, to Cuba simply isn't apt. And all you have to do is ask people to compare the the two of them, uh, if they've been there or if they've been an avid reader of, of news in the region, which, again, most people probably aren't. But they're, they're not really comparable in that way. Um, it's interesting that the real the real new thing that's sort of been in the news this last week has been uh, the kerfuffle over humanitarian aid, uh, because and maybe we mentioned this last time, but President Maduro shut down the the highways leading in from Colombia because there were U.S. aid, not International Red Cross. They've in they've made they've actually released a letter boycotting this, but U.S. aid, which is a U.S. government aid organization that sometimes does actually provide aid to countries like in Africa and other times does crap like they're trying to do in Venezuela, which is why other aid organizations have avoided it. Because in some of the trucks that they were trying to to drive across the Colombian border, there were weapons in these USAID 
containers in a uh, airplane from USA that was downed, uh, not downed as in shot down, but it was forced to land uh, by the Venezuelan Air Force. They found military grade weapons that were trying to be mm-hmm. smuggled into mm-hmm. the country, uh, presented as aid. Um, so, so the issue has essentially been the U.S. government says Maduro is a horrible monster. He's not letting humanitarian aid get into these people who clearly need it. And the the problem is this. If you're really concerned about helping the ordinary Venezuelans lift the sanctions so the ordinary Venezuelans can buy the things they need on the international market, stop cutting Venezuelans off from the rest of the world. If you're complaining about them not being able to get things from the rest of the world, because for all of its history, Venezuela has produced pretty much nothing but oil. There's no good farmland. There's nothing. There's no no manufacturing industry. There's no agricultural industry. They have had to import for most of their history. They've had to use money from oil to import what they need. So when you put sanctions on them, it hurts them more than ordinary countries. So first, if you want to help them, end the sanctions. Second, let your humanitarian aid be subject to the checks from the proper authorities, which USAID has not wanted to do. They've just wanted to get aid directly to the people, as they put it. But how can anybody check if there are weapons like the Venezuelan government has found with that airplane they chose to bring down? Third, as I kind of mentioned before, International Red Cross, which also does probably more aid than USAID or any other governmental aid organization does for people that are suffering, they have specifically refused to cooperate in this campaign of the U.S. governments because they know it's not humanitarian aid. It's an attempt to spark a civil war in the country in order to justify intervention. Uh, They've refused to, to have anything to do with it. And other countries that have supported the legitimate government of Venezuela have been sending aid. Just this last week, uh, shipments from China, Russia, Turkey, and Iran uh, made it to Venezuela through the proper channels that USAID refuses to use. So it's not about uh, Maduro supposedly preventing his people from getting what they need. It's more essentially about Maduro stopping weapons from being brought into an already heated and volatile situation and the U.S. government not being particularly interested in alleviating these people's uh, plight but actually continuing it with the sanctions because the goal of the U.S. government is regime change. It's not to help the people. The sanctions are to make people suffer so that they'll hopefully revolt against the government. The attempt to smuggle weapons in is in the hope that they will get ha- they will reach the hands of extremists and the opposition, and they'll be able to spark an uprising. It's not about helping the people. It's about the oil. It's about regime change. Yeah, I mean, I I can't really disagree with you on that. I'm surprised Gabe isn't asked anything maybe he's not followed it too closely i don't know uh, i don't follow it that closely to i, I to, to to be honest i mean the the issue uh, the issue in venezuela is sort of as as you and josh sort of as you and sam sort of described the wall as meh to me venezuela is honestly a meh because yeah. i mean my, my opinion of it is until boots hit the ground the rhetoric can be what it's going to be, but until we actually send troops there, it it mostly is just rhetoric. Um, and and I mean we we can echo that it's the neocons going to bat for war again, but you know maybe maybe there are boots on the ground now that we don't know about. But Venezuela to me is still a far cry from a conflict when we're actually. Um, fighting conflicts. I mean, it, to me, the fact that Trump came out today or yesterday, I think, and said that, oh, we'll ha- still have troops in Syria even after a withdrawal is a bigger issue to me than Venezuela. 
but but I'm just speaking personally of myself. I, I guess I guess I would speaking from the the situation in Syria is that and I would I would first like to point out I'm against the president leaving troops there. I saw that, but I sort of have the meh reaction because in the end those troops can't do anything but protect the uh, YPG, the Kurdish forces in the north uh, eastern half of the country. Uh, and part of the reason that they have, they switched, since you mentioned it, I'll explain for our listeners. Part of the reason that, that Trump went back on that is because two days ago, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was giving a speech, and it was a speech that was written based on the idea that the U.S. was completely pulling out. And Assad said he didn't name the Kurds directly, but it was understood that he was referring to specifically to them that the Americans will. And I'm paraphrasing him now. The Americans will not protect you. Only your state can protect you. Only we can protect you from the Turks, because President Erdogan, as those who observe this may know, is very strongly anti-Kurdish. He has already attacked Kurdish forces in the northwestern half of the, uh, the country. And uh, he has threatened to attack the Kurds that are bat- that are aligned with the United States in the northeastern half. And if the U.S. would have completely withdrawn, as Assad noted, the Turks, the the Kurds there essentially have two options: they can sit and try and hold the Turks off on their own, or they can lay down their arms and allow the Syrian army to come in and re- regain the territory and uh, and protect them. And so that is what I think Trump probably based that decision on. But for for me, it's a bit of a, even though I'm against it, it's a bit of a meh, because what can those U.S. troops do? They're not going to attack uh, Assad and the Russian and Iranians there. Uh, The U.S. is essentially, the U.S. essentially doesn't have the capability to directly intervene as much as neocons would like us to have in Syria. It's a different story in Venezuela, because Venezuela is in our backyard. It's not in, in Russia or Iran's backyard anymore. It's in where we have the home playing field advantage, kind of. and. and so the risk of intervention there in Venezuela is far greater than anything in Syria at this point, uh, partially because Assad has more or less won the war against the, the terrorists. What essentially remains now is border disputes between the Syrian government, the Kurds and the Turks, uh, all of whom are on their own side. Uh, in Venezuela, to your point on the, the rhetoric, I, I guess the rhetoric is important before we reach the point of, of having boots on the ground. Because that's what the whole debate over Iraq was. It was the the uh, there was the the arguments by those who opposed the drumbeat to war, and ultimately they lost, and we saw how that how that turned out. Um, and I think that's the concern a lot of people have about Venezuela. And, and this isn't the first time. I think Sam kind of mentioned this isn't the first time we've tried to overthrow the government there either. We did it in two thousand and five and failed too. Yeah, I mean it it didn't work it didn't work out then so. Um... Yeah, I mean, I also kind of got to agree with Gabe. It's all it's all theoretical at this point. So, um, anyway, though, on to uh, things that are non-theoretical. Do you, do you first off? Do you have any other points you want to uh, bring up? I think re- I think I pretty well covered all my bases with the new information and what's happened. I will quickly make a shout out to uh, Marco Rubio. Uh, who managed to somehow make the absolute worst case for intervention possible today uh, by all he did was tweet a picture of Gaddafi before he was murdered and then a picture of Gaddafi while he was in the process of being murdered. 
And uh, I, I think it kind of shows you how they've learned absolutely nothing because, uh, as I think I said to you guys, well, it worked out so well last time, didn't it? So why not again? Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. Marco tweeted out like a photo of your dog. Like, like, well, I sent, like, I sent it to our group chat. It was, uh, there was no cat text, it was just uh, a picture of Gaddafi. Uh, sitting at a parade or a conference or something, it looked like. And then right next to it, the, ne- the second picture he uploaded with it was uh, a screen cap from the video of Gaddafi being uh, sodomized with a knife as he di- as he was murdered. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah, he it, that was kind of strange. Uh, I'll admit, yeah. and I'm a I'm a fan of Rubio on domestic policy, but that was kind of strange. It it uh, it, it was the uh, and. I, I don't know what anyone was because if he thinks Libya is a good example of why we should intervene, then I think it discredits him from ever becoming president. Uh, but uh, but it it was just the worst possible thing to do, and also it just didn't look good. As, as I told you guys, Rubio, I assume as a fellow Catholic, went to mass this morning, and I don't understand how he could have heard today's do- daily gospel reading and then turned around and tweeted out pictures, seemingly celebrating a brutal murder with the implication that he was threatening somebody else with a similar brutal murder. It just didn't look good. Yeah. I mean, even without context, like, like if, if I, if I'm, if I'm like a normie, just like, uh, if I'm a, if I'm a normie, just like completely, and I have no idea what's going on. Like why a Senator would just tweet, tweet that with like no con. I mean, that's just, were were you uh were you uh were you hitting the Cuban rum hard last night, Marco Rubio? I've I've got a I've got to wonder. So, <laughs> maybe so. he let Trump. Maybe he let Trump borrow his Twitter account. That is pretty. Uh, Trump's more possible on Twitter than Marco Rubio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm 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 like wow. Trump's tweets aren't liking so. Trump is no. Trump is no longer the edge lord that we thought he was. It's now now Marco Rubio is the edge lord of the United States political, um, you know, class. So, um, on anyway. to hoaxes, though I believe you were about to say. Yeah, on to uh, so on to on to hoaxes, on to news that is not speculative. Uh, on to something that pretty much uh, before I could even get to it, pretty much wrapped itself up completely. Uh, apparently, Jesse Smollett was the first uh, American to ever scam two Niger- Nigerians uh, instead of the uh, reverse. Um, so obviously, most listeners will know... Um, but for those who don't, who have been hiding under a rock, uh, Jesse Smollett, who I guess was a actor on the show called Empire, he uh, essentially last week or sometime within the past couple weeks claimed that he was assaulted uh, in Chicago by two uh, Trump supporters who were wearing MAGA hats, and uh, it basically stir- stirred up a big uh, controversy and obviously got paraded um you know on all the news circuits and we we heard again about how the alt right is uh you know on the rise again and is this uh Shaw's too and you know 
stuff like that. Uh, it has since been revealed that uh, he uh, essentially staged this whole thing for uh, publicity. And uh, what's what's hilarious to me is the media is either so dumb or they're just playing along with uh, the narrative. Today I saw uh, one of the anchors on uh, on uh, NBC Morning News was like, well, well, we're not really sure why uh, Smollett did it, but uh, it's a tragedy either way. And uh, it's like, no, it's not a tragedy. He uh, he staged a hoax. Like, that's not a tragedy in the same, you know, vein as like Charlottesville or anything like that. So here's the thing, the two things for me. I think it's hilarious, first off, that he wrote a personal check with his own name on it that he signed. And the, the commission of crime. <laughs> yeah. That's like new levels of stupidity right there. Um, but uh, <clears throat> excuse me, my throat does not want to agree with me tonight. I, but, I would I would also add who still writes checks. Well, that's also a good point. <laughs> it's kind of rare. <laughs> right? I write them only for one company that that says I have I have an account with them. But when I go to pay online, they claim my account number is a real account. So that's the only time I write checks. <laughs> but uh, but that also. But the second thing is, is I don't think the, the media falling for it is funny. I'm more disturbed by the media aspect of it because it seems to demonstrate that only certain, ki- only certain kinds of people are believed. Uh, right, right. I mean, everybody, everybody instantly believed the accuser. When it was when Kavanaugh was on there, or when Judge Roy Moore was on there, or when uh, I forget the name of the the governor I was defending, the Democrat last week. I don't. I've heard anything about his case. Fairfax, not Northup. Fairfax. Oh, and uh, and and in those cases, they're instantly uh, the 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 person is instantly believed. But in, in this in this case, they believe him and seem to sympathize with him. Instantly, because of the fact he's a gay man, and even though the story made no sense, because the original story was that he was walking around in Chicago at night and he was approached by two. He said he was approached by two white guys wearing MAGA hats and that they had rope with which to try and lynch him. And they threw a chemical on him for the sake of my example. We'll say it was bleach. I don't know. Was but here's the thing though, and they and they all instantly believed that because of his identity, because he was uh, because of his claimed identity, because he was gay. Um, even though it made no sense, because if you're walking around, if you're a white guy walking around in Chicago with a Trump hat carrying a noose and a bottle of bleach around at night, you're asking to get shot. Uh, yeah, and and, uh, and and just didn't make sense. They also said it was MAGA country to him. He claimed. But it's disturbing, not just because the media instantly believes him because of his identity and sympathizes with him because of that afterwards. It's because of how easy it showed this could be abused, because up until it was exposed that he knew the the two uh, suspects, he was saying that he was ready to testify in court and he was going to go and put these two guys away so they couldn't hurt anybody else and blah, 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 blah. He was essentially if they would have brought in two random people that were totally innocent. He was willing to testify in court. He was willing to ruin two innocent people's lives. And, and now he seems that's that whole aspect seems to have been forgotten, but that, that's it. That, that should be a crime unto itself. 
But because he's a gay man, nobody wants to discuss that. They were all ready to believe him instantly, even though the story made no sense. And now, even after he's been exposed as a hoaxer, they're afraid to to go after him as a hoaxer because, oh, that might delegitimize real anti-gay hate crimes, even though, as far as I can tell, that's not a a, a, ra- a, a common everyday occurrence anywhere in this country. Right. Well, I mean, when when I when I say it's humorous, right, and and most folks know I have a pretty dark sense of humor. I mean, I mean that it's humorous and like that it is kind of humorous and like a really, you know, dark way. And I mean, like I said, either the media is completely ignorant and they're even you know bigger idiots than we thought, or they're inherently complicit in, in stoking the fires of uh, SJW culture. And I honestly have to believe that, I mean, sure, you may have a few simpletons in the newsroom who, you know, honestly are gullible, but I I definitely do think that there are, uh, that, you know, this, that the mainstream media is orchestrating, maybe not orchestrating, but helping to promote these hoaxes uh, in an effort to, you know, spark the uh the race war or whatever that they that the left is so desperately uh wanting it it's it's very disturbing to me because you know i i saw a whole bunch of uh articles from places like uh well i mean granted they were mostly medium articles and medium tends to deal a, a big lefty place anyway but you know point but uh a lot of these articles were talking, oh, you know, this is the alt-right. They want to start a race war. They want to start a race war. And it's like, well, no, uh, small scammed, you know, small produced a hoax, but it's interesting that you bring up a race war because uh, it almost seems like the, the left, the left kind of wants a race war almost with how much they uh, talk all this. And it, and it, and it is deeply scary that they're just going on blindly with this narrative. Uh, I I will say that the, uh, I, I watched a monologue from Greg Gutfeld the other night on this, which is actually where 90% of my information on this comes from. But uh, you know, he made a good point, which was we, we have so much racial intolerance in this country. We have to make it up. And, and that, that's, that's exactly what this is. What you could right. You couldn't find enough people wandering down a street actually practicing intolerance. You had to pretend like it actually happened. I mean, it it's what you said, Sam. It's they're they're trying to they're they're trying to incentivize this kind of of intolerance and anger to 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 get people outraged. I mean, ultimately it's part of outrage culture that we have to make things up to make people get upset about. I, I mean, that that's essentially what it is. And the, the sad part is, I mean, I don't want to downplay what you said, Josh, is it could have destroyed two people's lives. Um, and I think is is that I, I think it's a philosophical question of is that really how far we have to go to prove a point? Re- regardless of what the point is, are we willing to destroy people's lives to make a point? I mean that that in itself is a very dangerous precedent to set in any way. I think uh, you guys know that I uh, had sent you an article talking about another place in the world where you kind of see this uh, happening, where there are uh, 
people from the LGBT community basically making things up in order to uh, in order to play the victimhood card. And it's really fascinating to me because I, I have watched this for a while now. And there are people who are not like this, but they are the ones who are also less flamboyant as well. So they've not placed the entire concept of who they are as people into their sexuality. But there are the gay people, and you've all met them, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, the kind where if you if you assume, and it, like the, the people that flip out and say, you assumed my gender or whatever, right? Or the people that say, if, if you disagree, that if you disagree with, with homosexuality uh, on moral, as a, as a moral activity, if you disagree with it on that grounds, they flip out and they, they become very angry and aggressive with you. And I, I found this to be particularly interesting because I like to study psychology. And, and what, what you see happening in cases like that is the, the activation of the flight or fight, the fight or flight response in the brain it basically turns on when your brain feels that you are in physical danger, you are in danger of being wiped out, you're in danger of being killed. In their case, it's not so much that they feel that you're physically about to kill them, that you're going to pull a gun out and shoot them and they won't be there anymore. But it's like people who have narcissistic personality disorder. People who have narcissistic personality disorder have a dichotomy in their brain. We call it splitting, where there is the real self, which is very insecure and very hidden away. And there is the ideal self. And that's the puffed up version that's perfect and can never do anything wrong. And they identify with the ideal self. That's why they act so very arrogant, people with narcissistic personality disorder. And if you challenge that image, if you break through the shell and kind of see the real them underneath, uh, if you if you say you're not as great as you are or whatever, that can sometimes trigger what in psychology is called narcissistic rage, where they will become irrationally and unreasonably angry. Sometimes if they're more pathological to the point that this will cause murder and crime, uh, where it will cause them to to do things that can harm other people. And you see it sort of with with people in the in the homosexual community, because some many of them, not all of them, many of them have put their entire identity into their sexuality. It's become their ideal self. And they and if you challenge that in any way, then they feel as though they're physically under attack. You're going to destroy who they are. That's why that fight or flight response kicks in. And it's interesting in relation to Smollett. Because part of having your entire identity invested into an ideal self that's not necessarily reflective of who you really are is that uh, you have to justify the idea that other people don't like it. And the narcissists, this is why we see as a symptom for NPD, you actually have to, it's, you have to demonstrate so many symptoms, but one of the symptoms you can demonstrate or have to demonstrate to get it is uh, being uh, persistently of the opinion that other people are jealous of you. Because obviously, if you think other people are jealous of you, that justifies your worldview of thinking you're the greatest person in the world, because of course they'd be jealous of you, right? Uh, with people that have invested their entire identity into their sexuality and have taken up this false idea that they are homosexual, uh, they uh, they have the same kind of... Di people like Jesse, Jesse Smollett, they have the same thing going on where is it where in order to justify all the constant the the entire LGBT community's push for constant new rights and constant new protections, they have to feel as though they are oppressed. And so 
in his case, because that oppression, as Gabe noted, doesn't exist in this country. There's nobody going around lynching gays all the time. Uh, they tur- He turns to making it up. He fakes it. He sort of experiences a version of this narcissistic rage, kind of. And, and to me, it's interesting. I, I, see com- I see parallels between a lot of people who embrace homosexuality as an identity and people who have narcissistic personality disorder. And that's not all gay people, although it seems to be most of them. And as a Catholic, what I believe is that uh, our identity is ultimately in Christ. And we are constantly being made to compete with all these other alternative identities, be it putting your identity entirely in being white and all the problems that causes, like Richard Spencer, or putting your identity entirely in being sexuality. It's putting your identity in things other than Christ, other than what God made you to be. And, uh, and that's why they have these, these kind of reactions because deep down the inner self knows that they're not like that. And then when it's challenged or when that's not being oppressed and the idea that that identity can flip away from them becomes apparent, they have something similar to narcissistic rage where they freak out like the ma'am guy did in the store screaming it's ma'am and kicking stuff and threatening to fight people. Or whether it's Jesse Smollett faking hate crimes against himself in order to just to justify those feelings of being oppressed that he tells himself have to be there in order to justify what his community pushes in terms of politics. I, uh, you know, I, uh, Josh, I think that's a, that's a very good uh, summary. And as a fellow Christian, I, I too have to say that, you know, I mean, I think this whole thing with uh people taking their, you know, trying to find their identity outside of Christ, um, too, is very, is, is very, is very dangerous. And we, we also see this with people who, uh, you know, try to search for their identity, identity in politics, too, uh, both on the left and, you know, in the right. I mean, there are some, you know, there are some people who, you know, like, who do MAGA like pretty hard and, you know, that becomes their identity almost. Um, and you can see the same thing too. Like if you disagree with somebody who's invested themselves entirely in politics, for example, if you disagree with them on like the most minor thing, uh, they'll flip out and they'll become very aggressive. And they're the kind of people that you're like, Whoa, I don't really be around this person. I feel like they're going to beat me up for my differing. Flippers. And that yeah. happened. I know we like to sit around and pretend that only happens on the left, but there are a lot of people on the right who get just as worked up. Uh, I have kind of encountered it with the people that have placed their entire belief in the QAnon deal. Uh, oh, oh yes. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, uh, I've encountered that as well, but uh, we don't need to go into that because I've talked enough about that situation on this channel endlessly. So. That's ultimately the problem though. When, when people do that, because uh, as the catechism of the church says, inscribed on the human heart there is a desire to be with with god every human being has this that's why you'll see ideas that are not necessarily christian but they may have one thing in them that resonates with christianity they got one thing right even if they get the rest everything else wrong and that's because that one thing can come from the fact that even if they are they've reached the wrong conclusion they were still yearning for god when they thought that up or something um and when people place their identity in things other than Christ, it's sort of like the narcissist who has the real self, which is hidden away and they don't want to acknowledge it because it doesn't match up with their ideal self. 
And that real self is essentially the identity in Christ that on the, and their deepest core of, be, of their being, they feel called to, but they've rejected that in favor of this, this fake image. And when you, when that's challenged, they just freak out just like a narcissist with narcissistic rage. Indeed. Um, yeah. You know, and, and the, the, I guess the more important question though, that, uh, I heard, I heard in an interview with uh, Dennis while I was talking to Nick DePaul, and obviously they're both uh, they're both comedians, but they were talking on uh, Dennis's podcast uh, from Thursday. Will uh, shenanigans like this ever stop? And uh, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I think as the age of social media continues to grow, and uh, as as uh, you know, as sound as sound bites become more and more uh, extreme and more vitriolic, I think we'll unfortunately see more of these uh, cases in the future. So, uh, I I know, but not but not good news at all. And, and unfortunately, I don't I don't think the one thing that bothers me about all these uh, you know hoaxes, whether it be uh, you know Jesse Smollett or um, or, you know, namely Christine Blasey Ford. Someone brought this up to me the other day, too. We never seem to learn as a society just how dangerous um, these false accusations are society-wise. And that, that's, that's concerning because that's, you know, that's one of the ways in which our society, you know, has fall apart and will eventually come crumble completely i believe so I well think- I, mean, I, I think people just need to i, I mean i th- i think people just need to not well i mean i ultimately people just need not to need not to jump the gun uh, on things like these and they need to think about the consequences of when you put a story out like this because there are real life consequences to it um, and, and I know we've alluded to a lot of them here, but it is very, it is very dividing and it just makes it harder for anybody in the future to bridge that gap. Um, I, and so, I mean, my caution to anybody listening or to just Americans in general would be, be aware of what your actions create and the message that they send because that message can be very damaging and it, and it can have repercussions throughout th- through the country. Since, since our closing theme kind of seems to be giving some advice to, to help people avoid falling into this, I guess mine would be that people need to be critical thinkers again. Uh, I'll use an example from just this evening, right before we went on the podcast, I was discussing uh, debating the Venezuela situation with a guy. And uh, he disagrees with me on this, but he shared me an article. He shared with me an article from the Independent talking about the low turnout in the last in the last Venezuelan presidential election. And uh, the turnout figure turned that that was provided in this article. It was the Independent turned out not to be accurate. But most people who are reading that might not have noticed because they'll just take it. They don't critically think they just read it in the newspaper and they assume that all the newspaper it's got it's it's reported a stat. So it's got to be right. But it stood out to me instantly that the the twenty percent figure they were citing was the one provided by the opposition party. They didn't cite any other figure; they just cited the one from the opposition. 
And that was good enough for, for this gentleman, apparently. And I pointed that out to him and he did rethink it and he did start looking around and found out that there were other figures floating around out there as well. So I guess my advice to people is to just think critically and uh, and realize that, especially with with privately owned media, that there there is an agenda being pushed when you have when you have press like we do in America, that it's entirely corporate owned. It essentially serves to push the agenda of the people that own the paper, not necessarily to, to accurately reflect news. So think about that. Well, I mean, I think the same thing could be argued with with state-run media, depending on who's in charge. But uh, you know, I, but you know, that's a whole other topic for an, another time. So uh, I know it's, I know it's getting light uh, here for everyone. So uh, any uh, final thoughts and you know wrap-up thoughts for this evening from either of you, gentlemen? Mm, not on my end. Don't write checks if you're going to commit a crime. <laughs> That's my other. Don't commit crimes in the first place. But if you are, don't write checks. <laughs> Try and keep your identity a secret. It it helps. Well, I mean, you know, here's a here's a here's a better one. Just uh, you know, don't start hoaxes and don't you know, don't do this stuff in 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 the beginning. I mean, this is. This is one thing I do kind of want to uh, bring up real quick. It's uh, I have not watched the Oscars in a few in quite a few years. I I love uh, movies. I love watching uh, films. Uh, it's a you know favorite topic of mine to discuss on the show. Sometimes when we're not discussing uh, politics, but I have to say that I'm getting real sick and tired of all these celebrities uh, constantly, you know, preaching their, you know, their quote unquote moral virtues uh, from their, uh, you know, golden palaces in, in Hollywood and, you know, while thumbing their nose at the rest of us. And, uh, you know, Jesse Smollett kind of indirectly is what was doing that with the, uh, with this, uh, whole hoax in my opinion he was you know he was a son saying oh well you know i'm going he was only sparking sparking racial animosity and uh you know i i i guarantee you like i said i don't watch the oscars but i guarantee you that if uh if he had gotten his way and never been found out we would be hearing speech after speech after speech uh in hollywood about this so you know, just, I guess my, uh, you know, whole thing is don't be a scumbag to begin with. It's, it's just that simple. So, alrighty folks. Um, we don't have any interesting chat comments, just people, you know, chiming in and saying hello. Uh, thanks to everyone who, who uh, tuned in. Uh, I know that we, we covered a, a diverse uh, range of topics, and uh, this one of the podcast is generally more casual, so we appreciate you for listening. And uh, we'll be doing this every week on Sundays, as we usually do, at around 9 p.m. Eastern, so tune in here if you uh, enjoy the podcast. So uh, thank you very much for uh, listening and hitting that like button and subscribing on iTunes. 
And uh, from all us here at American Watchmen, uh, good night, God bless, and God save this great nation.